all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 182 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would happen to be the pop punk band of the SLS Cast. And you should already know why. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it turns out that in music, there is a Southern California pop punk band. They are known as Blink 182. Yes. And with the obvious reference this week, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. And that is not beer, Tim. That is, in fact, a LaCroix. Have you ever had a LaCroix? Or is it LaCroix? I've been drinking this for the past month and a half, and I have no idea how to pronounce this. Well, it sounds like, well, I'm pretty sure that's French for the cross. Really? L-A-C-R-O-I-X? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's French for cross. So have I been drinking religious carbonated water with some natural fruit flavoring added to it all this time? Well, I guess that's the miracle. It's how they get the fruit into the water. You just have somebody, like, bless it as they are actually holding fruit up next to the water and it is smashing it into... Enough of carbonated water talk. Tell me about your Memorial Day weekend. Ah, uh, well, let's see here. My Memorial Day three-day weekend consisted of Saturday uh, cleaning the fuck out of the house and getting it ready for my brother and my nieces to come into town as well as my dad. And then we did some very nice drinking on Saturday. Uh, drink, Saturday uh, did some very nice drinking on Saturday evening, and then Sunday we got up, ran a couple extra errands, and then we had the block party. And we probably had a good, I don't know, sixty people or so out there and grilling and smoking steaks and pork chops and grilling hot dogs and hamburgers and everything. We had uh, fajita meat straight from the Mexican butcher. Um, we had amazing, we had 15 pounds of brisket that showed up. Um, all the sides and fixings and everything. Yeah. And just immense mass quantities of alcohol. And does the drug treating or smuggling come before you eat or after you eat? <laughs> Uh, trade secrets, my friend. Trade secrets. Although, uh, the owner of Howie's Tiki showed up, too, so that was kind of cool. You even got your local bartender to come to your... I sure did. Fishy. Fishy, fishy, fishy. (laughs) We're expanding, you see. You know, know, new new market domains for the product. I've said too much. Uh, and then uh, yesterday was basically just recovering because I was just worn out. I literally was grilling and smoking steaks and stuff and everything. I mean, for the better part of eight hours. So it was a it was a long, hot Texas afternoon, drifted well into the evening. And eventually I just went kibbutz. And then yesterday was recovering. How about you? What did you do this weekend, sir? 
I understand there was like Snow White's village house. Wine cottage. Snow shit. White lived in a cottage, Matt. She didn't live in a village house. <laughs> There's no village houses when you do not live in the village, but in a in a wooded, heavily wooded area. In this case, was in Temecula, California, which is a good, I don't know, five miles away from a major freeway. So a cottage, Matthew, a cottage. But uh, we decided to go wine tasting, and we've been to the Solvangs and the Santa Barbaras and the Paso Robles area, Robles, Robles. So we decided to go to Temecula, which is kind of sort of in between here, in between L.A. and San Diego. So we're an hour and a, an hour and a half out of L.A., an hour out of San Diego. And we had a great time. And a lot of firsts had, had, had delicious wines. We even went to a brewery yesterday called Aftershock. And, man, I don't know if you've had such great success like I did when it came to tasting specific beers. Uh, because I've had, like, a peanut butter beer before. Not made out of peanut butter, but, you know, I guess they, they, I don't know how they use it. It's like this LaCroix. I don't know how they get the flavoring in it, but it's beer, and it's called peanut something, and it tastes like you're drinking a a Nutter Butter. Like, it doesn't taste like a Nutter Butter, but, like, the aftertaste is a Nutter Butter. They had a Dreamsicle one that kind of sort of tastes like Dreamsicle, but it wasn't overpowering. It was absolutely perfect. I've never experienced delicious beer like that ever before where they got the the perfect balance of beer and uh and whatever uh food or dessert they're trying to model it after but the most important first of all time i think this is when you know you are reaching the 30s i consumed my first 60 milligrams of phillips milk of magnesia wow well here's to hoping that i can make it another year without doing that because then I'll have made it to my 40s and not have had to do that. So you've never had it do Milk of Magnesia or take? No, no. I do remember the Robert Guillaume commercials, though, while Benson was still popular, and it was, and they called it Mom, Milk of Magnesium. And they, he would circle the label, <laughs> Mom. Because we all like to think about our mothers when our asshole is being evacuated. <laughs> well, because it was supposed to, you know, it's supposed to make you feel better like mom would way back in the day. I mean, was that a thing? Like, ooh, enemas with mom. Cleansing with mom. <laughs> I, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. <sighs> so but, do you have news uh, of the weird? I think I do. Uh, let's see here. This comes to us uh, from abcnews.go.com by way of Gatika Rudra. I, I guess before I read the title, let let's assume, you know, maybe maybe you know uh, you have a fence and you're good with all this kind of stuff, but let's pretend that you are a a desperate criminal and you f- found yourself in possession of your ill-gotten gains and you had a diamond. Like, you knew, it, man, man, it's got to be worth something. How much do you think you would trade that diamond for? Like, would you trade it for a car? Would you trade it for items? Would you try and fence it for cash? What do you think, Tim? Well, if, you thought, if you thought you had yourself a really high-quality piece of jewelry, really good diamond brooch or something, or amazing ruby necklace or whatever, tennis bracelet, 
What would you try and trade that for if you were if you were a criminal? You know, I'm not the biggest fan of donuts, but I would assume that I could get a bitchin' delicious donut with a diamond. That is the extent? Man, I think this article would be about you. Because it turns out that in Arizona, there was a dude who traded a $160,000 diamond for $20 in weed. Really? <laughs> like, what What kind was it? Was it swag? Uh... <laughs> Diesel. All right. So basically, is a guy uh, by the name of Walter Earl Morrison, 20, of Phoenix, Arizona, was charged with felony theft after he allegedly stole a package containing a diamond while unloading a UPS cargo plane. Now, (laughs) uh, he traded the $160,000 diamond. Which you could have bought a Maserati with and still had enough money to put a down payment on a house, according to the article. But he traded in this $160,000 diamond for $20 worth of weed, which according to a global marijuana price index is the rough equivalent of two joints. So how does that donut sound now? Before or after I smoke both of those joints. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if you'd like to read all the fine details here, uh, yeah, you can go to abcnews.go.com and look that up. Arizona man trades $160,000 diamond for $20 in weed, cops say. Uh, So that's, yeah, I just thought that little bit of news of the weird might perk you up there. It's not every day you hear about someone... You know, hey, I got this really cool diamond. Can I get a little bit of weed? Uh, I'll give you a couple joints. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm feeling generous. I'll give you an eight. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, so that was my news of the weird. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and jump into the email box, if that's all right. Go for it. All right. Well, we don't have any uh, Twitter followers to speak of this week as I check my email box here, which is, of course, the show at slscast.com. But if you, too, would like to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can certainly do that, and that's going to be at the SLScast for Twitter. But as I dive in, I've got uh, some email here. It looks like from Diana. She has sent us some email, and so has that fracking cat. Uh, Diana sends us the subject line of The Lobster. She says, Hi guys, I saw a movie called The Lobster at my local art house theater. It was so strange and defying category that it was actually a refreshing change from the usual formulas. It may be too bizarre for you to review, but I wanted Matt to know about it since he is a horror fan. This is a black comedy horror love story with beautiful cinematography all around an Irish resort hotel. Oh, and there's a Colin Farrell in it too, who deliciously fills his role with perfect deadpan. Would love to hear you review it. Cheers, Diana. Well, thank you very much. I have heard of this movie I don't know that we have ever actually reviewed it, but I know I've heard of it. Are you familiar with this one at all, Tim? Yes, I've been wanting to review this movie for a while, but, Matthew, it's not playing anywhere near you. Damn it. Houston strikes again. <laughs> all right, so hopefully um, then we will... It, uh, um, it, man, you. I listened to last week's show 
tonight while I was working. And I think I think you have infected me with whatever it was you had last week. Because now I can't talk. All right. So I think that as long as everything goes normally in terms of releases and stuff, this should be available by Halloween, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, they still might release it near uh, uh, in your area. It might still just be under limited release. I don't know if it's gotten its wide theatrical release yet. but Okay. Well, then, so Diana will keep an eye out for the lobster if it comes out fast enough. We'll definitely hit it sooner. If not, then I think we've got one of our horror movies that we will check out for our month-long horror celebration in October. Uh, moving along, we also have here from that fracking cat. The subject line is not the only one who liked him. And he says, greetings and salutations, gentlemen. Just dropping you a note to say that you were not the only ones that liked it for both Arthur two and last action hero. I own them both. Can't say that Arthur 2 is a favorite, but on occasion I will watch it just for the hell of it. I still don't know what fabricated half-inch pipe is. <laughs> Last Action Hero is just a fun movie. I don't know why anyone would hate it. I don't see it as a movie that takes itself seriously. It was made for fun. One favorite scene was Jack Slater and the kid walking into the station while being passed by Robert Patrick. It was little things like that that made it enjoyable. Thanks for bringing up these two movies again. I think I'll rewatch them sometime soon. I also wanted to let you. Uh, I also wanted to know if you two like the actor Fred Ward. There are two or three movies that, if you had time, I would like to hear your opinions on. People seem to like him in the right stuff, but my most memorable role is as Lyle Swan in Time Rider. The Adventures of Lyle Swan. It was a movie I watched as a kid in the theater, and it stuck with me. Took me some time to find it on DVD a few years ago, but it was worth it. I also wanted to know your thoughts on the movie Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. It's been a while since <laughs> I've watched it, but it was another big movie of his from the 80s. Thanks for your time, guys. I look forward to the next show. You two always keep me company at work each week, so double thanks for that. Have a great week, Cat. And he very quickly added an addendum. An addendum that was Time Rider. And he says, I realized I didn't give you a description of Time Rider in my previous email. Sure, you have the internet, but I should have added something so you didn't have to take the time yourselves. Anyway, here goes. Lyle Swan, Fred Ward, is a champion dirt bike racer who is on a big Baja race through the desert. While on his ride, he goes off course and runs through an area that is being used for testing some temporal experiments to send objects through time. Lyle is caught in the experiment and is sent back to 1877, though he doesn't realize it at first, and before the scientists realize their mistake he rides off to find his way back to home base it's not long before he runs across local people who mistake him for the devil in his red biking suit and riding machine he also crosses paths with a local bad guy played by peter coyote who wants his bike and starts tracking him down that's just a brief description guys it has flaws when it comes to the time traveling aspect but it's time travel of course there will be there was just something about the story itself that i enjoyed and still do to this day this is probably an i'm the only one that liked it choice hope you guys get to watch it and thanks again cat i guess we have we're, we're getting some uh listener requests here and they sound like they're interesting and we might need to look into them so all right well that is all of the email and i guess now we can get down to the actual news news shall we news 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 all right folks here we go it's the news <laughs>
first up from me uh, from hollywoodreporter.com by way of boris kitt batman v superman fallout warner brothers shakes up executive roles this was an exclusive for them uh back on the 17th i realize we're a couple weeks beyond that now but we've had a lot of news and a lot of things going on so i'm just now getting to it i'm sorry This is a catch-up week on news for me. The fallout from Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice continues to ripple through Warner Brothers. The Burbank-based studio is making changes to the way it handles its DC entertainment-centered films, giving oversight of the feature projects to a pair of executives and creating a dedicated division for the films. Current executive VP John Berg and Jeff Johns, DC's chief content officer who successfully launched the comics label Foranda Television, will co-run the newly created DC film according to multiple sources. This is uh, this move is part of a broader refinement of executive roles at Warner's, which has suffered a disappointing run of movies and has vexed producers and filmmakers, some of whom complain about a murky greenlight process. Now, instead of a broad range of movies to oversee, executives will be charged with managing, quote, genre streams, unquote, while reporting to Warner Brothers Pictures president Greg Silverman. In many cases, these streams formalize interests and specialties for specific executives. Uh, Courtney uh, Valenti, for example, will now oversee all Lego projects as well as the Harry Potter line that begins with November's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Senior production execs Jesse Ehrman and Nia Kirkendall will focus more on comedy-friendly and sci-fi action, respectively, according to sources. Um, And basically... It says here, skipping around through the article so I don't have to read the whole thing, the muted reception of BVS from a box office and critical point of view is the flashpoint for the changes. The studio had high hopes for the movie, which pitted its top heroes against each other. The door was open for director Zack Snyder to be involved in shaping the look and content of the entire DC line, which is scheduled through 2020. But critics and fans ripped into the first pick, and especially Snyder for perceived missteps, including its hero's unheroic behavior and the dark tone bvs which cost at least 300 million to make has grossed less than 870 million worldwide since its march 25th release warners has said the film will be profitable but it was hardly the home run the studio had wanted and uh of course contrasts that with marvel's captain america civil war which within two weeks of its release was already almost at one billion dollars so uh, what do you think here, Tim? Do you like this idea of having a specific content design and spinoff? Because, I mean, that's that's ostensibly what Disney did, right? They created Marvel Pictures or Marvel Studios, basically, to handle everything Marvel in terms of the cinematic universe and stuff. And then from there can also branch that into the TV. And then they just report to Disney as a subsidiary. So... I mean, it seems like this is actually kind of a smarter way to go. Or do you think that this is just maybe another desperation play by Warners to try and do something with DC that just might work? I don't know. Do you think do you think DC movies are a lost cause? Um, not entirely. Or do you think they can actually dig themselves out of the hole? Not entirely, because they seem to have done some things right in terms of TV. Um, and while that's not movies, it does show that they do have ways of telling their stories successfully. On the flip side of that, though, I mean, we did have the Dark Knight trilogy. So, and that's within that's within the last, you know, 12 years. So I, I count that 
um, because it's relatively recent in the DC mythos in terms of actual successful films. Um, granted, it's only one successful thing, but I mean, I think it's possible. I just don't know what they're missing. So it's either they're not getting the right creative people to line this stuff up. They're not getting the right scripts. They're not getting something in the green light process that was, you know, like aforementioned. Well, it's definitely Zack Snyder. They need to get rid of Snyder. I mean, it's not a, I mean, Ben Affleck shouldn't be the new guy to come in and take over stuff, you know, like it should not be Ben Affleck. And I think that's what gets me is that, yeah, I, I, I think I would rather, I would definitely rather see a Affleck directed Batman movie so that Snyder has nothing else to do with the mo- with the movies. But the issue also is that if Snyder is still going to be a part of the DC universe in some way, even as like an executive producer, that still means he can have uh, you know a- enough creative control that he can continue to muddle some of these movies. And I, I they just need to get rid of him, get rid of him and some of the other producers and. Well, I mean, I, the article does also mention that Affleck was actually made uh, an executive producer for Justice League. So, right. I mean, it seems like slowly but surely, um, whether we whether it's an overall good idea or not, Affleck is getting a shot to kind of set, step in for Snyder. Um, I don't know if that might work in the interim, yeah. or if it's you know, and only time's going to tell, but. But it's like also with with uh, Marvel, it seemed like for a while, uh, Fige, Fage, Fige, Fage, Fige, Fuge. Oh man, somebody. Kevin, I, I watched a show the other day, and someone pronounced it right. Figi, Figi, I think. Yeah, I think it's Figi. Yeah, like with him, it seemed like he was running stuff for quite a while, and I'm, I know he wasn't running the show by himself. But once like Guardians of the Galaxy came out and James Gunn turned out to be a great director, I think he's getting more control with Guardians of the Galaxy too. But then you have the Russo brothers who did uh, Captain America uh, Winter Soldier and they did such an awesome job with that. So I think they had more of a handle on the new Captain America movie. And it kind of seems like nowadays, or not nowadays, but... With these later Marvel movies, it's now director-friendly, you know? Like, it's not all about what Kevin Feige wants to happen. I mean, they, uh, the directors have more room to play with. And I think, I mean, that, I mean that, that's something that I think DC should know, is that you cannot rely on one person's vision. Because if that one person's vision turns out to be Snyder's vision... It's difficult to fully get away with that. It's like with Tim Burton, you know, like it's great when you see a really good Tim Burton movie like the original Batman or the original first two Batman movies or Beetlejuice or, you know, Big Fish or whatever. But if Tim Burton makes a really bad movie like Alice in Wonderland or Dark Shadows, it's obviously Tim, you know, it's obviously Tim Burton. You know, he's the one that messed up. It's his vision and it's right there. And that's that's how I feel with Zack Snyder is that Zack Snyder deserves the blame because it's Zack Snyder's vision that is so blatantly all over these movies. Personally, gotcha. I guess. I don't even know if that no, makes no, sense that's or not. Hey, no, that's totally fair. I mean, and it just goes to show um, there's, 
you know, even as much as you can lay something at one person's step and uh, at one person's feet in certain regards, I mean, it just goes to show that the whole process is still pretty jacked up. Um, anyway, what do you got for us, sir? First two bits of news pertains to Disney. That's right, the Disney. Not the man Disney, but the company Disney. It turns out they broke a couple records this past week. Uh, first one pertaining to the little movie that you might have heard of that came out called Zootopia at the beginning of this year. It turns out it is the second biggest original movie of all time after Avatar. And, I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's, I mean, it's a good uh, title to have, but it's just kind of sad that it's Zootopia. You know, it's the movie that, it was a good movie, but it wasn't a great movie. And yet it's known as the second biggest, highest grossing original film of all time. But uh, via ScreenRant.com, in what was perhaps the biggest surprise hit at the box office thus far in 2016, Disney Animation Studios' original motion picture Zootopia saw initial theatrical release back in March and quickly became known as Disney's largest box office opening ever. Co-directed by Byron Howard and Rich Moore, and starring Jason Bateman and Jennifer Goodwin, the film has become an instant classic among Disney devotees and fans of animation in general alike. According to Forbes, Zootopia is edging towards crossing the $1 billion mark at the worldwide box office with a standing grand total of $991 million, placing the picture in direct competition with its Disney brethren, Toy Story 3, at one06 $63 billion and Frozen at $1.276 billion. Not accounting for inflation, Zootopia is the second biggest original movie ever released behind Avatar, Disney's 11th biggest movie at the global box office, and the 6th biggest non-sequel of all time. Generating a total, a grand total of $75 million during its opening weekend alone, with a standing total domestic gross of $336 million, Zootopia has proved to be a remarkable earner at the box office going on nearly three months now. After spending 13 consecutive weeks in the top 10 features in wide release, the film has earned its spot as one of the highest grossing films of 2016 thus far, and might just go on to become a serious Oscar contender at next year's Academy Awards Ceremony. Do you think that is a good title for Zootopia to have, or, or do you feel the same way that there's a little bummed-out feeling that it's Zootopia is garnering this kind of attention? Um, I... I, I mean, it's obviously, it's not its fault. You know, it's... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's... You're right. It's not its fault. It's just generating the media attention it gets or the money it gets or whatever, but... I don't know. I guess uh, you can keep creating categories for things to do well in, right? Like if you really wanted Sting to win a Grammy, right? You could just do, uh, you know, the category could be, you know, uh, artists from former bands with five letters in their name that start with an S, right? <laughs> they used to be named Gordon. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Sure, the non-sequel sixth. I mean, you get. I mean, sure, their original stuff. It's great. It's fun. I'm glad that this getting. But it's just another way to say, look, it made money. So yeah, that, you know, that's it. In the next Disney record breaker via FilmSchoolRejects.com, written by Neil Miller, Beauty and the Beast, the most watched movie trailer in one day ever. 
Uh, and this is pertaining to Beauty and the Beast, the remake that's coming out later this year, starring Emma Watson. And it says this, Here's something you may not have expected. Though to be fair, this is a year in which all kinds of weird things are happening on the internet. We've experienced the most hated movie trailer of all time in Ghostbusters, and now we have the most watched movie trailer of all time in a single day. It's a crown that seems to be passed around between various movies under the Disney umbrella. Avengers Age of Ultron set the mark a while back with 34 million views in a single day. Captain America Civil War found even greater success with 61 million views in a single day, but neither of those Marvel movies could top Star Wars The Force Awakens. The second trailer for J.J. Abrams' Star Wars sequel reached over 88 million sets of eyeballs, not accounting for those with eye patches or glasses, cheeky there, within its first day. But earlier this week, Disney released the teaser for the upcoming live-action Beauty and the Beast movie starring Emma Watson, a teaser that doesn't really show us much of anything, and it scorched the internet to the tune of 91.8 million viewers in its first 24 hours. It's impressive, as there's more to it than simply Disney knows how to get their trailers out there. In the case of The Force Awakens, now Beauty and the Beast, we see examples of teaser trailers that are just that. Teasers. For Beauty and the Beast, that means little hints of what we know is to come. We hear the voices of Cogsworth, played by Ian McKellen, and Lumiere, played by Ewan McGregor, a little bit of growling from the Beast, Dan Stevens, and a quick hello from Belle, Emma Watson. The only character we see on screen, other than the lively CGI castle, is Watson's Belle, and only for a brief moment. And the article does go on there, uh, Beauty and the Beast does open March 17th of next year. Apologies, I thought it opened this year, but next March. Matt, I know I asked you during the pre-show if you watched this trailer or not, you said you did. Uh, what did you think of it? Are you excited for it? Or do you just think the trailer was just a ripoff of the original Disney cartoon Beating the Beast trailer at an attempt to get into the feels of people? No, I mean, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think it did a good job of actually teasing it because it was so reminiscent of the old one because it kind of copied the first one, basically. But on the same, to- uh, the same token, it was kind of cool to see a... To see the uh, to see the transition from what they did on the animation side to what they're going to do in the live action side. The only downside for me is I really wish they got the guy who voiced Lumiere to do the live action acting in this movie, but they didn't. So sad. Who did it? Was it the guy from Law and Order who did Lumiere in the Disney movie? Um, let's see. You mean like the dad in Dirty Dancing? Jerry Orbach. Yeah, yeah, the guy. Okay, yeah. So I guess that's going to be difficult because he's dead. So <laughs> they need to bring him back. Look, this is Disney. They can do anything. Just For about 12 years. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's all right. We only need his voice. Anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and just stop. Let's see here. This is kind of a stupid one. I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit more serious uh, to close out my news. From People.com by way of Adam Carlson. Elijah Wood speaks out on child abuse in Hollywood. Quote, there are a lot of vipers in this industry, unquote. Elijah's long career in Hollywood 
beginning when he was just eight, taught him that there are, quote, a lot of vipers, end quote, in the industry, he told the Sunday Times in a new interview. Wood compared unnamed child abuse allegations in America to the Jimmy Seville's abuse scandal that rocked the United Kingdom after the longtime entertainer faced hundreds of sexual abuse allegations following his death, and thus his loss of protection from scrutiny. Quote, you all grew up with Seville, Jesus, it must have been devastating, end quote, Wood, 35, it said. Quote, clearly something major was going on in Hollywood. It was all organized. There are a lot of vipers in this industry, people who only have their own interests in mind. There is darkness in the underbelly. If you can imagine it, it's probably happened, end quote. Oh, let's see here. He, let's see here. It basically, he credits his escape from this with having good parents who did not... Um, allow him to attend parties and stuff like that. Um, but he has done research, he says, where he, he kind of found that there are dark, dark corridors in the industry where a lot of children are led down. And he, it, it's, he kind of closes it with these two quotes here. It says, quote, What upsets me about these situations is that the victims can't speak as loudly as the people in power. There's the tragedy of attempting to reveal what is happening to innocent people. They can be squashed, but their lives have been irreparably damaged. End all quotes there. What do you think, Tim? Uh, do you think he's speaking out uh, out of turn? Or do you think that as someone who's been in the industry for 27 years, as a kid... And as a grown-up, to see it from different sides, that maybe he's got a better idea of what he's talking about than other people would like to think or should be comfortable with. Sure. I mean, obviously, he. I mean, either he directly experienced something or he's witnessed it himself. So I've never been a child actor before, nor have I uh, had to deal with child actors and directors working with child actors or anybody really working for child actors in that matter. So I, I don't know. There's really not much I can say about it other than that. I believe him. He doesn't seem like he, this would be something he'd lie about, you know? Indeed. Indeed. I just, it is kind of sad that there's, you know, even with all the strides we've made, there's just still so far to go. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, that is my news, sir. So bring us home with any other news you would like to share. Okay, I'm going to end with two pieces of news. First one pertaining to Stanley Kubrick. I talked last week, or spoke last week, about uh, Spielberg wanting to bring Kubrick's, his dream movie, Napoleon, uh, to life as a miniseries. Uh, but it turns out that Kubrick had another movie lined up before he passed away, and that movie was a family film, a family version, well, I guess, I mean, we only really know, you know, most popular, the family version, of Pinocchio. That's right, from io9.gizmodo.com. Stanley Kubrick was about to make his own version of Pinocchio before he died, written by Jermaine Lussler. And it says this, There's no doubt we lost Stanley Kubrick before we were ready. He died in 99 at the age of 71, fresh off his 
first movie in over a decade with no plans of stopping. In fact, a new interview reveals after the release of Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick wanted to make a movie about Pinocchio. Speaking to The Guardian, longtime Kubrick assistant Emilio de Alessandro said the following, quote, Stanley was interested in making Pinocchio. He sent me to buy Italian books about him. He wanted to make it in his own way because so many Pinocchios have been made. He wanted to do something really big. He said, It would very nice if I could make children laugh and feel happy by making this Pinocchio. End quotes there. And to be clear, this is not what would eventually become AI artificial intelligence, a similarly themed project Kubrick worked on for years that was eventually completed by Spielberg. This was completely separate, according to the assistant Diaz Alessandro. One of the many, many things that make Kubrick such a legendary filmmaker was how he really dabbled in the same genre. With each film, he made a particular kind of movie, then moved on to something totally different. One genre that he never tackled was a family film, which seems to be his thinking with Pinocchio. It's a true shame we'll never see it. End all quotes there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, seeing a Kubrick version of anything would have been a treat, uh, not only uh, visually, but narratively as well, uh, especially with Pinocchio. I, I can only imagine what he had in store for us with that one. And lastly... From NoFilmSchool.com, uh, if you're not familiar with No Film School and you are into film or you are a filmmaker in training or you would like to become a filmmaker one day, I do recommend this site. Again, it's called NoFilmSchool.com. They teach you a lot of tricks. You, you learn a lot of stuff uh, through these articles and they have a podcast as well. So I highly recommend you check this stuff out. Published today, May 31st. Written by John Fusco, why Nicholas Winding Refn's violence leaves us begging for more. Nicholas Winding Refn is the director of such really good movies, I think. Uh, the, the classic Drive, Valhalla Rising, that we reviewed uh, a year or two ago. His upcoming Neon Demon is, is supposed to be great. I think that's coming up in the next few months, I think is when it's going to be released. I, I can't remember. But yeah, why Nicholas Winding Refn's violence leaves us begging for more. He is known for his violence. The article says that much has been said about the quality of Nicholas Winding Refn's canon. Drive ascended into cult status faster than any other film ever made, while Only God Forgives was widely panned by critics and audience alike. In short, his films are divisive. Refn has admitted that he isn't that great of a writer, but for what he lacks in that department, he makes up for the quality of his violence. Should a filmmaker be praised his ability to depict violence? If it comes down to terms successfully that filmmaker tells his story visually, then Refn surely deserves acclaim. The conversations surrounding the ills of violence in media have existed since the invention of the medium itself. Is it bleeding hate, causing patrons to go out and hurt the innocent? And think of the children. With that in mind, let's take a look at how violent films influenced Refn's own childhood. When he came to America, 
As an eight-year-old from Copenhagen, Refn could barely speak English, and he was severely dyslexic for a long time. Visuals were the only way he could communicate with his peers. What's more, his dyslexia caused him to have major difficulties reading and writing. The midnight films that he was so drawn to in his youth were more than just escapism. For him, they would provide a key to communicating. The influence violent movies had on his own childhood proved to be invaluable in creating his aesthetic. This is all well and good, but what about using violence as a tool in filmmaking? In an interview with RogerEbert.com, Refn explains, quote, I guess art is an act of violence in a way. It's an emotional outpouring. I think that violence in the cinema is necessarily a fetish. Emotionally, our artistic expression consists of violence or sex. It all boils down to those two pure emotions. But where erotica or sexuality is not fantasy, because most of us do it, violence, on the other hand, is fetish, is fantasy. There is a sexuality to violence that I find very intoxicating. I think that is what turns me on, end quote. Refn uses violence as a shortcut to the basic principles of human nature. Like Lars von Trier and Jodorowsky, the brutal visuals he employs tend to resonate on some deeper level. They pop up in our minds at inappropriate moments, much like a guilty secret that weighs us down and provides us with endless fodder for obsession. Evidenced by the quote above, Refn isn't afraid to admit that he has a fetish for violence and is smart enough to realize others have that fetish too. It's not hard to see why he likens his own work to pornography. But for Refn, the violence has to be tasteful. The director gave Screen Rant his secret to pulling off good violence. Quote, In each film, the protagonist is forced to have a moral stand. That moral stand then ends with a consequence. You cannot live life without consequences. Whether you do something, there will be a consequence. Just like violence only works if there's a consequence. There's a buildup. You can't just be violent for violence' sake, because it's not emotionally engaging, so it becomes bad pornography. If you see too much of it, you start to disengage from it. And that's where violence can become dangerous for the psyche, because it no longer has any meaning. Like people who get addicted to pornography, the sense of empathy and emotion start to deteriorate within them. It's a frightening effect. End all quotes there. I think that is a really good article. Uh, I think that is a really good interview worth checking out. Uh, that was an interview with Screen Rant that I was pulling some of those quotes from. Uh, but the article itself, again, is from nofilmschool.com. Why Nicholas Winding Refn's violence leaves us begging for more. His violence is beautiful, and I cannot agree with him anymore with with what he said about the art of portraying violence in a movie there has to be that build up there has to be that consequence because if there is not if there isn't that build up or there isn't that consequence there's no link with the viewer you know that there, there's nothing for you to get involved with and if it's just mere violence for the sake of violence there is that um there is no link there I've seen really great Quentin Tarantino movies where he uses violence in the same way that Refn uh, explained. But then I also seen Tarantino use violence in a way where he's just blatantly using violence for the hell of it. 
and it's a totally different viewing experience. Yeah, so Matt, what do you think? Do you have any comments, questions, or concerns with either of these two pieces of news? Uh, no, no. I mean, that was definitely very in-depth there. Very, very in-depth. So I will let that stand on its own. That was code for it took too long. <laughs> because that's just the type of guy I am. All right, well then, that should conclude the news, and will now bring us to... Thirty Squared! And this time on Three Squared, we are going to be discussing um, the most ripped-off movie posters. Now, uh, I'm, I'm going to admit... Uh, that I cheated here, but Tim said it was a very clever cheat and that I'm allowed to, to use it, so I'm going to. Instead of taking one movie, like an iconic kind of a movie poster, and then noting three movies that may, that may have copied that poster, I had a just a stroke of genius. Lightning had strunk, struck my brain as they say in Hook. And then Hook says, of course, mm, that must hurt. Well, have you ever seen or heard of a Nicholas Sparks movie? Now, I say Nicholas Sparks movie, but it, he wrote the books, and then the movies were made on the books. But just think The Notebook, right? Now, I'd like you, if you could, to simply Google, like go to Google hit images, and then simply Google Nicholas Sparks movie posters. And you will find, like, just group photo shots of all of his movies that are... They're the same goddamn thing. A man and a woman embracing and just about to kiss passionately with some kind of blue sky sunset-ish thing going on in the background. Every single time, which is hilarious when you consider the fact that the notebook actually has it like raining in the front. But nope, nice clear blue sky in the background with some kind of sun lighting coming from between the two lovers as they're about to kiss, right? And it's the same thing for like every single fucking one of these movies. There's a nice little group shot here with the notebook and Knights and Rodante and the last song and the lucky one and safe haven and the best of me. Uh, Every, so, so all Nicholas Sparks movies is my choice for the three squared. All Nicholas Sparks movies. Okay. Every fucking poster is the exact goddamn same thing. Exactly. Fucking stupid movies. Anyway, what do you got there, Tim? Have you seen any of those? Have you seen any Nicholas Spark movie or read no, any? I have, however, I have, however, seen the trailers for every single one of the movies. Just because in the course of time and passage and everything, I have seen the trailers for all the movies. But never have I seen one of the movies, ever. Hmm. Is your wife a big fan of Nicholas Sparks? No, nothing I know of. I I guess I'm just never going to tell her about it. Maybe she doesn't know. Who knows? (laughs) My wife left me. Why? Because I made fun of every single Nicholas Sparks movie poster. 
Hey, if she stayed with me after all the shit I gave her about Twilight, I'm sure she'll stay. <laughs> I'm sure she'll 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 suffer through my musings on Nicholas Sparks. Uh, anyway, what do you got for us, sir? All right, so movie posters. I'm intrigued by this, and I'm glad we were able to kind of sort of do this three squared this week because. I've noticed trends with certain movie posters. You'll see one big movie, one popular Oscar contender that comes out, and they have a very unique eye-catching trailer or uh, eye-catching movie poster. And then the following year, you have another movie, either by the same studio or another studio, that kind of ripped it off in this in the same way. And it might not actually be an Oscar contender or a a, a movie that that's as well regarded. Uh, but they just really wanted to create that type of poster to catch your attention and to maybe kind of sort of generate that same feeling you had associated with that first movie with this one. So it's definitely a marketing ploy when it comes to rehashing and stealing or ripping off uh, a good or original movie posters. A lot of movie studios do this. A lot of the same movie studios, do, uh, they do the same thing with their own movies. Either they hire an artist to come in and design interesting posters and they just happen to just model the same design for various movies at the same studio or you know it's it's a cost effective way for some studios and it's cheaper and it's easier for them to cut corners and especially if you have a movie like i mentioned before that did well then why not give a movie that you're not expecting to do so well you know no time dedicated towards the marketing. <laughs> so uh, I think that was the case for maybe one or two of these movies. Um, not necessarily because they thought the movies were going to be uh, complete failures. In fact, all these movies did incredibly well, uh, some more than the others. But I think it was just to, uh, to, to, to capture that feeling, to capture the audience's uh, uh, re- feeling and reflections on what the poster reminded them of. Now, the poster that I remember using this design for the first time was The Man Who Fell to Earth, the David Bowie movie from 1976. Um, In fact, it wasn't the original poster from 1976, but it was the Criterion packaging that came out in 2005 for the Criterion DVD release. The packaging is of David Bowie as his alien character, not looking straight uh, at into the camera, but kind of looking down a little bit, and in big font it says the man who fell to Earth, and the title takes up most of the page and it covers most of his face, uh, but you can definitely tell, it, you know, see that it's David Bowie's character there, and so it's a very intriguing and, and eye-catching design because you have the main character and then you have the title right there. And it just kind of blends well. It's how it catches your eye, and it's just very unique. So I started seeing this design pop up many of times, and many variations of this as well. Not only with the words, but you even have like the big character posters where it's just the character's face, for example. But I'm just focusing on the ones with the character's face and the words that kind of cover the uh, uh, cover the rest of the poster in large font. Um, the first time I noticed this. It actually done well was The Social Network from 2010. That is the one that says you don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies. 
that is the text over Jesse Eisenberg's face then when he's just staring blankly into the camera as Mark Zuckerberg. I guess it's supposed to be his profile picture. I, I don't remember. I haven't seen the movie actually since it first came out. And that poster was designed by a Neil Kellerhouse, who actually also did the Criterion DVD packaging for The Man Who Fell to Earth in 2005. So this makes sense. He's just kind of reusing the same technique. I even went to his website and noticed that he kind of uses the same technique for uh, uh, many of his other art pieces, but not necessarily a direct ripoff of his own work. Uh, but in this case, he kind of, you know... It, kind of ripped himself off just a tad but again not as obvious since man who fell to earth was dvd packaging but next up is from 2011 different company social network was i think columbia and sony thor from 2011 one year later is of course disney uh thor is the poster or had the poster where you have chris hemsworth as thor all in you know red coloring it's again it's his it's his uh, upper chest area his shoulders and his big old head and there's the title there's a lettering the god of thunder you know just written kind of scrolling down in thor uh there at the bottom with some credits and whatnot again it's not the exact same poster but it is very close it's imploring the same technique where at the same time as you are uh, at the same time that you are reading the title you are actually seeing the picture of the main character all in one view and then most recently this technique was used for the martian from this past year 2015 it is the poster that i'm sure we have all seen of Matt Damon in his spacesuit, where you see his face, the spacesuit helmet, and kind of, sort of, the top part of his body. But the giant lettering in this instance says, Bring him home. Matt Damon, the Martian, and then the credits below that. So, I don't know who desert, who designed Thor or the Martian. Um, I think, guys, whoever's listening and whoever would care, uh, do look this up if you're interested. And get back to us and let us know if... Any of these posters are related in some way, because if so, I think we just found that person out, and maybe they should start incorporating some new aesthetics to their designing. The three movie posters that ripped off The Man Who Fell to Earth 2005 Criterion Packaging were The Social Network from 2010, Thor from 2011, and finally The Martian from 2015. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that concludes our three squared for this week. Next week, um, we will actually not be having a bonus segment uh, due to our recording schedule while Tim is visiting the wonderful state of Texas. So there won't be a... <clears throat> There will not be a bonus segment next week, but the week after we will have a nice bonus segment where we have a double dose of discussions with Matt and Tim. So look forward to that in two weeks. And from here, we will go to the movies. <laughs> This week's movies are X-Men, Apocalypse, and Tale of Tales. Uh, where would you like to start first, sir? How about Tale of Tales? 
How about Tale of Tales? Huh? All right. Tale of Tales, 2015 English language, Italian, French, British fantasy horror film. Um, really an anthology. As much as it's fantasy horror, it's really an anthology horror film. And it is directed by Matteo Garon, which is actually, this is his first English language effort. And the film stars uh, Salma Hayek, Vincent Cassell, Toby Jones, and John C. Riley, among others. And what we have here is kind of an interesting uh, take on the uh, Pentamorone, or I'm sorry, Pentamerone, which is a 17th century collection of fairy tales, right? And these were kind of like the inspiration behind the Grimm Brothers and stuff. This is kind of where you get your Rapunzel, um, the very core of like Rapunzel and Cinderella and stuff that we see emanating from Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um... And so what we have here is a mix of reality and surreal fantasy that blend within these um, three different stories that kind of culminate together in one ending. Uh, they are, however, as I said, it's anthology style, so it is. Uh, they are self-contained stories. And the first one talks about is about a queen who is basically who cares nothing uh, who cares for nothing other than having a son and or having a child basically and she's given an opportunity to have a child and so she's like yes I want a child let's do it give me a child and and so the the wizard uh, I think they call it a necromancer but whatever the wizard is like okay but somebody's gonna die and she's like i don't care i want a baby i want a baby and she's she has to eat the heart of like some dragon or whatever and that's a very lovely image i'm sure uh so anyways uh and so this is the quest of having of what happens after she gets her child and how it all works out and the selfishness of this woman as she all she's just so single-minded about her goal and how it plays out. The second story is about uh, the flea, which is a, a king who loves his his family and his daughter, but unfortunately he comes across the most remarkable flea for him. And like a literal flea, right? Just bouncing flea. Everybody's seen him. And he just loses all control over everything and just has to have this flea and so he feeds you know like the old which way did he go george which way did he go which of course is you know based on steinbeck and everything but still everybody remembers the the commercials or i'm sorry the old cartoons and so that's what the king does i'm going to hug him and pet him and squeeze him and love him forever and that's what he does with the flea and the flea is like gets to this grotesque thing and ends up dying and so even beyond all that, he still kind of cares for this flea more than his own child, and it causes his child to end up mixed with an ogre. So that in and of itself kind of turns into its own shtick. And then we come to the last segment, which is about the two old women. And this is a guy who basically the king um, is simply uh, has insatiable libido and all he wants is hot hot chicks to sleep with and so he gets his way except one the the hot chick that he thinks he's got is really an old is really an older woman 
And so shenanigans ensue and things happen that cause both of these people, the the old woman who the king thinks is young and the king himself, they both kind of go through these weird transformations in terms of how they behave in their character just because of the idea of what it means to be wanted physically, right? And so when lust actually takes over you. Um, and then there is a nice uh, culmination of all of these different stories where the, um, the aftermaths of each story kind of resonate in one finale. Um, this is just a holy crap great film. It it doesn't get too lost in the surreal. It doesn't try and um, take too many fanciful turns. I I reckon I, I kind of look at this as more or less like an anthology version of Pan's Labyrinth. And I I just I mean cinematography, the storytelling, everything uh, in terms of those technical departments are awesome and i really enjoyed the anthology presentation i like the medieval aspect of it um it definitely brought a different kind of a feel to the way that these stories could be told especially for things that we've heard over and over again or and seen many times the only thing i didn't really like um and this is the only star i'm pulling from it i don't know some of the like i believed the characterizations i saw the writing it's just for me some of the casting choices were just wonky and I and I can't describe it any better than that but it doesn't detract from it doesn't make the movie bad or anything it just for me I I don't know I just kind of I don't know maybe something was lost in translation I just um wasn't really digging all of the casting choices so I give this one four out of five fantastic movie check it out what do you got Tim wait what'd you give it four out of five Four out of five. You know what? I give it a four out of five as well. My biggest complaint is that I think it could have used a little bit of uh, or more whimsy to it, more of like a whimsical kind of like fairy tale feeling. That is kind of not what they were trying to go for at first, but by the end of the movie, it just had that full on fairy tale feel to it. And I think that would have helped with some of the characterizations and help out with the endings of each of these stories especially because a couple of these stories just kind of end like oh this happened and that's it whereas maybe one of them actually has a fitting ending that actually felt like it worked pan's labyrinth was a very adult mature fantasy film but it still had those fantastical and whimsy moments to it so that when the ending happens you realize oh shit that you know like this is different <laughs> and i think this movie would have been a little bit better it would have it would have stuck together better if it went kind of full-on kind of fantastical feeling by the end and, and and really took its time the movie clocks in at about what two hours two hours and some change and yet i think if it was about 20 minutes longer it would have been better you know, like there's a there's a chase with an ogre in a high wire act where the ogre is trying to catch somebody by going over a high wire, and it happens just so fucking quick. To whereas there's no build up to it, like the ogre is coming, the ogre is coming, and oh, and that's the end of that. 
you know, uh, it's just, it could use more buildup and more, and I do think that fantastical, more of that fantastical element could have worked. But I still give it four out of five. I do recommend it for sure. Awesome. All right. Well, then that is going to leave us with X Men Apocalypse. Of course, it's the latest X Men franchise film, uh, courtesy of twentieth century twentieth century Fox. And here we find um, Brian Singer desperately trying to give his own spin on an actual third X-Men movie because he decided went to walk away and the third X- original X-Men movie was all jacked up and stupid and he went and screwed up Superman and now he's back to do this. Um all right, so everybody knows about my disdain for Days of Future Past. However, despite that that ultimate disdain and how much I hated it and everything, I did uh, fairly, in my opinion, give it two out of five and not less because my disappointment was so great at the way that it was portrayed. So going into this film, I had very, very low expectations. Um, those low expectations were met. So... In short, I'm just going to go up front so nobody has to listen to me rant. They don't want to listen to me rant. Two stars, again, for X-Men Apocalypse. Now, um, I did like the clever jokes that he threw in about the third movie, again, because they do that. Um, they, they have some clever jokes in there about that. So You mean, uh, you mean the shoe-in shoe joke that is only there for the sole purpose of making fun of? <laughs> yes, basically. everybody. Yeah, everybody knows that the third one is the worst. Anyway, um, so the biggest problem that I have with is the absolute largest problem is, let's see here. According to Wikipedia, this, the budget for this movie was $178 million. Okay? Um, I don't understand how you can have a budget of $178 million and yet you end up with a movie that you may as well call Sky Captain and the X-Men of Tomorrow. For those of you who are not familiar with Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, it was a kind of a prototype movie where they were really trying to push the envelope of digital filmmaking at the time. So the entire film was done in in blue screen and green screen and stuff like that. Um, And they were heavily using, you know, Mac, MacBooks and stuff to process it and everything so that they could show just how cool technology could be. And the movie didn't do very well. Um, It was ambitious. It was cool, a cool idea. And the thing is, is that that movie was literally like 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. Um, this movie makes that movie look good. Uh, the, you, you knew you were in trouble when the opening 10 minutes is gods of Egypt all over again, all over again. Um, and you also, and then, it just, and then the, the special effects get no better after that. Also, you have Brian Singer desperately trying to recreate the fun stuff with like Quicksilver in Days of Future Past, and we do it now, except it's um a, a longer scene that is dumb and blowing up the school and everything. I don't know. The actors are not bad. It's not the actors are bad. It's and the story itself is 
okay. But the writing is completely inconsistent. It doesn't fit the characterizations that have come up so far. Brian Singer with Days of Future Past in his quest to blow up the timeline and literally make this movie anything he wanted it to be forgot to understand a few basic things including special effects again except whereas days of future past the effects got worse as the movie went along the effects are just terrible for the entire movie another thing that he forgot in the suspension of disbelief is that we understand how to tell time and despite the events of days of future past we still have an era that has literally spanned 20 years we started in 63 with first class we're now in 1983 with this particular film and nobody looks 10 years old nobody looks remotely 10 years older and especially with like huge key critical well theoretically critical plot points involving uh characters like quicksilver and magneto that's like ridiculously important not to mention you have to remember that magneto or eric is roughly 12 or 13 years old in auschwitz when they first show from first uh first class which was of course just uh a reshoot of the original x-men movie and here he is in like 1943 in auschwitz and now here we are in 1983 Michael Fassbender does not look 53 years old. Like, and I'm not talking about good for his age. He doesn't remotely look 50 fucking years old. So none of these people pass for accepting the, the fact that these people have supposedly aged another 10 years. I don't want to hear, oh, they're mutants. They don't age the same way. Come on. This is not, I mean, when you go back and think about, just go back and look at Days of Future Past, right? With Sir Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart and everything. These guys got old, Okay. It's just how it works. It sucks. I'm sorry. People age, but it just didn't work in your movie. Um, it's, I mean, and again, I'm sure I'm going to be the only one. I, and I'm fine with that. But the movie is just riddled with plot holes. Not as bad as in Days of Future Past. I'll give it that. Um, and it's just not, it's just not there. I, I do not hate this movie. I again my expectations were very low so I really wasn't expecting much it's just I mean like there's a particular scene towards the end of the movie where you have this container ship in a in a in a port right and I mean I've seen better special effects from the from the movie Titanic okay with those CGI that was better CGI than this and that was from 1997 so I give this one two stars, um, and that's and, and I'm done. <laughs> Bring us home, Tim. You know, the funny thing is, is that I I agree with you wholeheartedly with all your complaints, especially with the aging. But I I mean I still like this type of movie better than all the other Marvel bullshit. Like it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it's just fun, despite all the problems. And I, I mean, there were plenty, uh, there, there are many things that I was going to mention, but Matt, you pretty much covered it, so I don't want to reiterate it. Uh, with, with the aging and kind of the timeline issues and kind of shoehorning in various story elements that just really don't fit, for example, the Quicksilver uh, story and the Quicksilver segment when he has to go and save the kids. 
tonally, it doesn't work with what is going on in the movie. Like, there's nothing else fun in the movie that really sets up that way-from-left-field segment. There are plenty of issues like that peppered from beginning to end, but when it comes down to it, I had fun. Uh, I do like Brian Singer a whole lot, mainly because he is a bold filmmaker. He takes bold cho- uh, chances. He, uh, he does take fun and entertaining and different chances with his movies, uh, like the whole uh, thing with Magneto. Magneto's motivation, I thought, was very bold, and... It, it was a good chance that Singer took. His motivation as in what kind of turns him bad, I suppose, what happens to his wife and daughter. I mean, you just really don't expect that to happen, uh, let alone how he reacts to that particular instance. You don't expect it, and it's just interesting to watch. You know, you're, you're, taken, you're taken a little aback by it, which is a good thing. Other bold decisions is there's another Ashwitz sequence uh, in this movie, uh, not as, well, I guess, depending on how you look at it, it could be very kind of sad and, and depressing, especially what these people, what the bad guys choose to do in the Auschwitz setting. I mean, a lot of that stuff, or some of the decisions don't work out for the best, but again, some of those decisions that were made are still entertaining to watch. It's something, again, that the Avengers movies don't really do. They don't take these kind of chances. The Avengers movies, and I'm including even like the Thors and the Iron Mans and the Captain Americas, they have a playbook. They have a rule book where they just go through and they just mark things off, making sure they got everything covered. That doesn't go without saying, again, that X-Men does the same thing. Um, you have Mystique trying to be trying to do her own thing uh you know you have magneto brooding brooding magneto and you have professor charles xavier who's trying to do moral good things and monologues about it and he has never seen such power before you know he always says something like that i've never had to come across something so grandiose but he has we we all know he has uh, but this movie, unlike Days of Future Past, it is not another mystique movie. It is not another team-building movie. And it's not completely another uh, another Charles Xavier and Magneto butting heads movie. One trying to help the other out. One trying to sway the other in the good direction. The action in this movie is more grand and excessive. Some of the action definitely feels shallow and without stakes. For example, at the closer to the end of the movie, we've all seen in the trailers where there's big destruction, cities are being torn apart. You see all this mass destruction happening, but you really don't see who it's affecting. Like, there are no shots of the people on the ground. There are no shots of all the people, the the millions of people that are dying because these are buildings being ripped apart. And you know sure as shit that people have not evacuated those buildings. So I think the movie, because of how semi-dark it is, it could have benefited from more of an emotional level when it came to those who were directly affected by all the carnage and rampage in the rampage that Apocalypse and his four horsemen were on. Um, and I, I mean, there's more I could talk about without spoiling anything. There's a big character development that Brett Ratner used in 
the last stand that Brian Singer does here a little bit more effectively uh, that pertains to Jean Grey. That doesn't give anything away unless you're a big comic book fan. And if you're a big comic book fan and you haven't seen the movie, I definitely spoiled it for you. But I'm pretty sure if you're listening to this and you're a comic book fan, you have seen the movie. But uh, what I am referring to, if you stick around to the Are you referring to the fact that it's Sansa Stark? Is is Jean Grey is is Sansa Stark? Is that what you're referring to? Is that the spoiler? Sans Stark? Sansa Stark. Sansa Stark? You You lost me on that one. You you don't watch Game of Thrones, I take it? No, I don't. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I thought you would get that reference. Uh, No, the girl who plays Jean Grey is the same girl from Game of Thrones. She plays Sansa Stark. Does she act better in Game of Thrones? Um, she's starting to, but oh, it wasn't her fault. Her character is really a petulant bitch in the first couple of seasons, and now she's actually coming into her own. So. Oh, that's good. Well, yeah, so Jean Grey, as comic book people know, something happens with her that's that's a classic uh, Jean Grey moment, or Jean, Jean Grey character development, and it's better utilized in this movie than what Brett Ratner did in The Last Stand, but there should have been more to it. Because of the power that Jean Grey harnesses, it is a very destructive and a very dark into some a very evil and elusive power that once that power comes out, people, I mean, nothing is really said about it. It just kind of happens. And it would have been nice to have like a look from Charles Xavier or maybe... I don't know, another monologue or something or voiceover, whatever from Charles Xavier kind of, uh, uh, you know, saying something about Jean Grey's power. So, I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean, again, it's a lot of the same criticisms that Matt has, but I was able to overlook it for the sheer entertainment aspect. So I give X-Men Apocalypse 3.25 out of 5 just don't go see this in real D3D. I made the mistakes all in real D3D, and it sucked. So go see it 2D. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to bring us to the end of the movies. Uh, next week, we only have one movie uh, because of all of the visiting and traveling and all that kind of stuff. So the next couple of weeks are going to be kind of funky in format. Um, but the shows will be here, and they will be fun, and they'll be pretty damn live because Tim and I will be together recording so that'll be fun so next week's movie is alice through the the looking glass and that is what is happening there so i think it is now time for the spiel is it not spiel on all right well the music you've been listening to for our segment intros and beginning and ending of the show as always have been brought to us by our music partners cries of solace you can find them at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can also follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can even climb aboard that information super highway and track down tim on twitter if that is your heart's desire don't forget you can also subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to john c Riley, i get to say this hey i'm just trying to become the michael kane slash gene hackman of my generation take your cinephiles and we'll talk at you again live next week
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.